Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Hell Explained. So let's turn our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, as we hear a message entitled, Hell and Christian Motivation. most famous and at the same time most maligned of Christian sermons in the last 500 years has been the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was, it was preached by the Reverend Jonathan Edwards at Enfield in what is now the state of Connecticut. It was preached on July 8, 1741, that is, before the United States actually became a nation. I say it, it's a much maligned sermon, but while it was maligned, and while I've often heard it said that we never need to hear sermons like that anymore, one thing, however, remains certain. That sermon was indeed a profoundly biblical sermon. Pastor Edwards began by quoting from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, their foot shall slide in due time. The text is a part of the final sermon of Moses given to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab just before Moses was about to die and then Israel was about to move into the promised land. And in the sermon, Moses remembers how, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them on its pinions, so also the Lord has guided Israel from, from the time he brought them out of Egypt and taught them his laws and placed his tabernacle among them and showed them how to worship and train them as they were not only to become a nation, they were to become the unique people of God. But says Moses in this sermon, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek, and then Israel forsook the God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. And, and by the way, in case you're wondering, without getting into all the details, Jeshurun it's just a nickname for Israel. Israel grew fat, says Moses, in that their fat, lazy state, they forgot God. See, Moses has in mind the incident of the making of the calf idol in the desert, and that after all the miracles that God had done, that Israel simply couldn't give up their fascination with idols. And Deuteronomy 32, verse 17 says, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And in response, says Moses, God threatened to hide his face from them, for they were indeed a perverse generation. And verse 22 says, for a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol. And verse 23 says, and I will heap disasters on them. And the reason, of course, is that they are a nation devoid of understanding. How could one have chased a thousand, asks Moses, unless their rock had sold them? And what he has in mind is that Israel has taken no notice of the amazing victories that God has accomplished for them or had given to them. See, what accounts for that, he asks? I mean, did you ever even notice how great and mighty is the God of Israel? I guess they just took God for granted. They, they grew fat on the advantages they had, and they were faithless to the God who gave them everything. And with that, we come to Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, the very passage that Pastor Edwards quoted in his famous sermon. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. Or, or from the translation that, that Pastor Edwards used, it says, their foot shall slip in due time. Now, from that one verse and the image that's found in it, Edwards noticed four things. 
the image of a foot slipping or sliding out from under them, that is, when the time is right, in due time, well, this seems to imply or bring into our minds four very distinct images. And Edwards wants his hearers to stop at each image and consider exactly what it is that Moses is communicating about rebels as they walk the pathways of their lives. So the first image is that that the Israelites were always exposed to this kind of slipping or destruction. He compared this to a man walking on slippery places where, where the very path he's walking makes slipping a very likely phenomenon, or at the very least, that he's constantly exposed to slipping or he's constantly in danger of slipping. He's walking on slippery ground and therefore slipping is always probable. Second, said Edwards, the image is also an image of sudden, unexpected destruction. When a man walks on a slippery path, he's liable to fall at any moment, and it's most unexpected because the person who's walking can't anticipate the moment when his feet slide out from under him. And here he quoted from Psalm 73, verse 18. It's a psalm of Asaph. And you might remember that Asaph had a complaint against God. Asaph wanted to know how it was that unrighteous people were allowed to prosper. And then then Asaph learns the truth. So I quote from verses 18 and 19. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. See, it was God himself who put them on a pathway where, where destruction was always at hand, whether he was paying attention or not. And so the first two images for Edwards were simply that God has put the unrighteous on a slippery path so that they can anticipate when they're going to slip. And secondly, that they are liable to slip at every moment. Third, said Edwards, the image implies that they are liable to fall of themselves. See, no one else needs to attack them and throw them down. Their own weight will work against them. The very nature of the situation is such that, well, they're their own enemy. And fourth and finally, and this was the key to Edward's sermon, the reason they've not fallen already, he said, is only that God's appointed time for destruction has not yet come. That is, the only thing that keeps wicked men and women out of hell at any moment, this is what Edward said, is the gracious hand of a God who has made no covenant with them. That is, God has not obligated himself to protect them. And that even while they don't know it, Wicked men and women are walking along at ease with themselves, not knowing they're walking on a rotten covering over a pit, never knowing at which step the ground under them gives way, and they immediately descend into hell. In order to further bolster that point, Edwards pointed out that God doesn't have to resort to a miracle or to an extraordinary event to take men and women into the next life but that there are countless examples from everyday experience that tell us that our present health, that the levels of our physical fitness, or the fact that we're at peace, that all these things are no insurance that our foot will not slide out from under us at the very next step. After all, this happens all the time. Sudden heart attack, an unexpected and freak accident, You know, I remember some time ago hearing of a woman driving through British Columbia's Fraser Canyon with her sunroof open, and a tiny rock had fallen off the cliff, went right through her sunroof and went right through her forehead and through her brain and killed her instantly. Now, what are the chances of that happening? When your number is up, God's a very good shot. No matter how we contrive, said Edwards, or in our 21st century language, no matter how we plan matters out, 
There is no security at any moment that keeps any person out of hell other than the mere uncovenanted pleasure of God. See, furthermore, Edwards wanted his hearers to understand that that right now there are people in hell who have lived a more moral life than people who are alive right now and have not yet gone down to hell. And since many living people are morally inferior to many who live right now in hell, we must only assume that these people are long overdue for hell. See, all that keeps anyone out of hell, said Edwards, is the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up rather than letting you slide. Why would Edwards speak this way? See, in his sermon, he told his hearers that they are so blessed. What, he asked, would those damned souls in hell give right now to have what you have, this opportunity to hear and to respond to the gospel? And with that, I want to quote him. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with Love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins with his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. And with that, he makes his appeal. Let everyone who is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. (laughs) You might be wondering why I would spend so much time quoting from this famous sermon that was preached over 250 years ago. Well, for one, The timing of this famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I mean, the the timing of this sermon is interesting. It was preached during the First Great Awakening, perhaps the greatest revival ever seen in America, and one of the significant reasons why Christianity has played such a substantial role on this continent. And yet, as many have pointed out, the actual results of that particular sermon seems to be that it gained only a few converts, if any. So what's the value of a sermon like this? Is there any value in talking this way? February 3rd to the 11th, join us for our 60th anniversary celebration, Caribbean Cruise. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway from Laugh Again, Isaac Dagno from In Doubt, and special musical guests Shane and Angela Weeb for a nine-day adventure of not only enjoying the sights and sounds of the Caribbean, but exceptional opportunities for worship, fellowship, laughter, and digging deeply into God's Word. I promise a vacation event that will refresh, encourage, and draw you closer in your walk with Jesus. So don't miss out. Call today for more information as room is limited. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page online at backtothebible.ca. And please remember that any of our Back to the Bible Canada vacation events are paid for solely by the participants and the gifts of ministry friends across Canada are never used for this purpose. What role does the doctrine of hell play in Christian motivation? If one preaches on hell, does it lead to a great many converts? See, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon did not lead to converts, at least as far as we know. 
I mean, perhaps the safest thing to say is that the effects of that one sermon are unknown. On this matter, let's consider Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, sometimes it's thought that only a message of kindness can lead a person to repentance, that a, that a message of wrath will only alienate a person further from the love of God. But please understand that, that Edwards was overwhelmingly concerned with the spiritual decline that had destroyed so many of the churches in the New England area. You know, during Edwards' day, a kind of theology had become very popular. That theology was then called the halfway covenant. What it was was a way in which it allowed less pious people to still become members of a church. It was a, a halfway covenant. See, they might not be able to believe everything the church believed or the things that the Bible taught, or they might not be willing to live the moral Christian life. And because of this, people were not in church. And so a halfway covenant was invented. It was a way which allowed people to feel they were a part of the church, even though they weren't saved. But they had a halfway covenant. It was a, a membership in church. Even while they weren't believers, they were only halfway in. And so when Edwards repeated the line, you have no covenant of grace, that God has made no covenant with you, but that you are walking on slippery places, I mean, that language was a jarring shock to many people who were religious, but they were asleep to the God of the Bible. And that sermon and the memory of that did precisely that. It overwhelmed people with the idea that when one had no covenant with God, one wasn't in control. One didn't have a halfway covenant. The situation was altogether desperate. Until that moment, they'd never known that before. And that brings me to the question of motivation. See, we live in a culture where the prevailing value is the value of self-esteem. The idea of inherent sinfulness, the idea of a God who jealously guards his own glory, well, that's not being rejected. I would argue it's never even been heard by most people today. And because of that, most people simply assume that God is love, that he wants all of us to simply love ourselves. We're like the philosophy of modern school teachers. Don't give the little kids grades in school lest they stop thinking they're special and that they're a child of the universe who is in the bud of greatness just waiting for the flower to open and amaze the whole world. And so in a recent survey among millennials, about a quarter of them would forgo anything else in life if they could only become famous. We're enamored with ourselves. We become overwhelmed with the glory of self. We can't imagine God in any other way than affirming the inherent value and worth of us. See, one interesting study even found that among convicted murderers, a great many of them believed that they were still good people. And God, at least as so many think, is obligated to give good people what good people deserve, good things. And that includes heaven, eternity. See, in one recent survey, almost 90% of North Americans believe that they're going to heaven when they die. And interestingly enough, about 78% think that there's going to be golf there. I mean, where would good people go but to go to heaven and have a great time? And I know there's so much to discuss here. But the most important, of course, is the issue of sin. But here's the point. Most people don't believe they're sinners. And almost no one has considered what Moses declared in Psalm 90, verse 11. He said, who considers the power of your anger? 
And Moses was simply noting that that God was putting the entire human race to death. We're all going to die. We were dying because of our sin. And from that, I come to a conclusion. Our situation is far more serious than the day when Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. See, I think it's fair to say it's not so much that people reject this conception of God. It's far more the case that they've never heard it. But still, I can hear someone asking, well, what would Jesus preach? Well, thankfully, we know the answer to that without a doubt. That's because we don't have to ask what Jesus would preach. We can merely look at what Jesus actually did preach, what he said. Because we don't have time to look at all of it, let me just read what's recorded in the book of Matthew. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Those are the words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Those are the words of Jesus. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction, and those who find it are many. Those are the words of Jesus. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Those are the words of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty three, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades or to the place of torment. Those, the words of Jesus. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Those are the words of Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 30, as a part of the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said, let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. Those are the words of Jesus. Matthew 22, verse 14, part of the parable of the wedding feast, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the words of Jesus. Matthew 23, verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The words of Jesus. Matthew 24, 50 to 51, part of the parable of the wicked servant. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the words of Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the words of Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 46, and these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, the words of Jesus. I don't know how to make the matter of motivation more plain. Simply showing you that no one motivated people more by threatening hellfire on them than Jesus. No, no, it wasn't Pastor Jonathan Edwards who came up with this method. Jonathan Edwards learned it from Jesus. Jesus believed that if we keep on sinning and do not stop and we do not repent, we will go to hell. Jesus believed that if we act hypocritically, we will go to hell. Jesus believed that if you slander another human being, you're going to go to hell. 
Jesus believed that you might not be punished for your wickedness in this life, but the time of judgment is coming, and at that time, most of the human race will be thrown into hell. Furthermore, Jesus said that people in hell would be gnashing their teeth. And no, that's not an image of pain. It's an image of anger. All manner of people have deluded themselves into believing that they're going to heaven. That's their expectation. It's what they have been taught all their lives. They are convinced of their own goodness, and they believe they deserve to be in heaven. And then in hell, in disbelief and horror, they grind their teeth in unbridled rage. They want to say to God, how dare you? And it's for this reason it is imperative that we use hell as a motivation lest people deceive themselves that their rightful place is heaven. See, if you're listening to me right now, please repeat after me, I deserve to go to hell. It's my rightful place. My crimes against the glory of God are of infinite gravity. And even if I suffer for all of eternity, that would not atone for what I have done. But would you also repeat this line? I believe that Jesus was tormented on my behalf, that he who deserved only heaven willingly chose to suffer under the wrath of the Father on my behalf. Therefore, as an act of faith, I trust his wounds to testify for me. I willfully throw myself on his mercy, pleading for forgiveness and asking that he would count my sins as having been satisfied in Jesus. And so I surrender my life into the hands of Christ. For if I refuse so great an offer, Right now, there are souls in hell who would love to be in my shoes and be given this offer today. So today I surrender to Jesus. And remember, to fail to do so is to put your feet on slippery ground. Seek mercy while it may be found. John, let me ask you about the title, Hell and Christian Motivation. I mean, what other motivation do we need to to take seriously proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? Yeah, I mean, we would certainly want to say that it is certainly not the only motivation. We understand that the love of Christ constrains us. But understand the context of that. And the context is always love for people who are perishing. And once we understand what perishing actually means, it takes a hardened individual to say, I'm not moved with pity at the lost estate of so many individuals. So, you know, as we've noticed, so much of Christian missions was motivated by this. So much Christian preaching is as well. We want to remind ourselves that that God so loved the world that whoever believes should not perish. So it's people perishing that we're concerned about. So, yeah, that's motivation. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you taken the time to check out our young adult ministry in doubt? Well, let me encourage you to do just that and to let the young people you know, family or in your church, that in doubt is a ministry geared just for them geared to offer biblical answers to some of the most difficult questions of life and faith. Check out InDoubt at InDoubt.ca. Listen to the weekly podcast, read the timely InDoubt news feed, and find out about the InDoubt live events that you can either attend yourself or join using Facebook Live. Hear from trustworthy experts from around the globe as they provide biblical insights to issues like sexual identity, loneliness, anxiety, entertainment, 
and discuss fundamental issues of faith like, does God exist? Why is there so much suffering? Check it all out today at indoubt.ca. Indoubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada.